Hello again, everybody. It's Pastor Adam, and I have a, a topic today that's very uh, popular, relevant issue that's very popular and relevant that we're going to go over in the Word of God. And so let's go to God first and acknowledge Him this day. Father, we thank You for this day, and we thank You for the gifts that You've put on each one of us. We thank You for the assignment You've put on us. We thank You for Your love, Your grace, Your mercy, Your forgiveness, Your justice. We thank You, Father God, and we ask for an ability now to comprehend what's being said, Father God, and that it uh, be something that is from you, not man, and that it makes sense to us and that you give us the wisdom to understand what is being portrayed in your word here. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now, um, <clears throat> you know, this topic, it's, there's been always a lot of talk in our lives uh, before we were around, it'll be going on after we're gone you know, on how Christians should interact with the culture. You know, how do you impact the culture you're, you live in? And I, for myself, you know, it's something I've, I've explained a lot of times during just one-on-one conversations with people, as a, a minister, uh, in small groups. Uh, <clears throat> and during my life, an observation that I can make about this is there... I don't know exactly the time this happened. I'm just going to speculate and say it was like in the 80s, the 1980s. It, could, it probably was, it could be before, could be after. That's not important. I think what's important is that we all agree there was like a pendulum swing. of uh, This like all of a sudden strong belief among Christians that if we're going to impact the culture, the way we do that is becoming more like the culture. For instance, by becoming more palatable to the culture, we have to learn you know, the culture's language, the culture's music, the culture's styles, you know, everything that goes on around in our communities. But it doesn't stop, what I've, what I've witnessed, it doesn't stop with just learning them. We've got to ad- adopt them. And it doesn't stop with just adopting them. We have to master them, mirror them, so that Christians actually become what the culture is. And, and the reasoning, as far as I can sense and figure out, is... The reason behind Christians being told to do this is only to the degree that we become what the culture is, are we then able to impact the culture and transform the culture. That, that's what I'm referring to. I hope I articulated that accurately, got my point across. But that's what I'm referring to when I say this pendulum swing happened. You know, again, I don't know exactly when this happened. I think it happened in our lifetime. I mean, I really sensed this in the 80s and 90s when I was a young adult, young man, uh, you know, and it, it seems that's the prevailing ideology, especially with, you know, the younger generation, my generation at that time. It seemed, and it seemed to swallow up the rest of the Christians and how to approach evangelism. Uh, I think it could be fair to say it, it's encapsulated by this term contemporary Christianity. And I would further say that there is also a sense in which we believe that we have to do what we have to do to impact culture is not just to become like the culture, but that we have to go into the most influential areas in the culture, master those most influential areas in the culture before we can, you know, properly evangelize, before we can properly be received and accepted in those most influential areas in the culture so that we can then, you know, do what the scriptures say, right? Transform the culture to be like Jesus. Now, I think the most obvious example of this is in the Christian music industry, you know? 
And, and because then you become popular. And then when they become popular, they automatically then get a platform to share the gospel. I mean, it's, it's and to me, this is such a, it's so easily described. It's a classic bait and switch. People, I've watched this. I've, people I personally know, and then on a larger scale, people I don't know that are in the national spotlight. I mean, they rationalize and reason that they will be all the world is going to desire, right? So that they can become incredibly popular in the world. And then once I'm enthroned in this position, the world is like worshiping me and listening to me, right? That's when I'm going to spring the gospel on them and flip the script, so to speak, and tell them all about Jesus. And, and then, of course, you know, I'll be able to have the greatest impact and all the world's going to be saved because they're going to be listening to me because they listen to me and my music and I've been put on this pedestal. Well, let me just tell you, not only has that not worked, I mean, it's failed miserably, but most of the time, if not all the time, the other, they, people come out the other side speaking against the word of God. I'm sure there are people coming to your mind right now and it's, it just goes on so frequently. We're probably numb to it because it's so common. We're so disappointed in the people that have the influence and the, have the opportunity to share the word of God and they don't do it properly. Most of them, a majority of them. There are a few that do, but they're so minimal and they get silent so you don't hear about them. Okay, so having started with that, I want to look at, well, what does scripture say in this area, in this arena? Does, does scripture even give us guidance on this? Because a, a, a question of mine has always been and always has continues to be is what does scripture say about whatever the issue is? Okay, what do we see in the scriptures? Is that, is that the way the scriptures instruct us to, you know, walk out this issue in Christianity? So for instance, today I'm going to focus on, you know, what do we see from the Apostle Paul? I mean, he wrote a good portion of the New Testament. He gave us great instruction here on how we're to live this out the way Jesus wants us to. And, the, you know, when we look at Scripture and Paul specifically, did Paul do it this way to become popular and then, and then spring and do a... No, not at all. But I want to look at Scripture so we see it. And today I'm going to focus on a particular instance that I think reflects all of the instances when, when Paul is ministering and and evangelizing and sharing about Jesus. It's in Acts chapter 17. I just think it's a great example of how we're to do this. And it'll clearly demonstrate what a lot have been taught and a lot do as inaccurate and it has no impact. All right, so I'm gonna pick this up in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Here's what scripture says. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. All right. Now, I want to do just a quick recap of why Paul was waiting for them and who the them is in Athens. When you, when you read through the book of Acts, and it's in kind of chronological order, not all the Bible is in chronological order. The book of Acts is, and the book of Acts covers around a 30-year time frame from Jesus' ascension at the beginning to the last chapter is about 30 years. So that puts us from the, you know, AD 30s, early 30s to uh, AD 60, okay, roughly. So 
Why was Paul waiting for them at Athens? Paul had been in Thessalonica and Berea, right? Just prior. And wherever Paul went, it's very telling. There's either conversions to Christianity, there's rioting against Christianity, or both. And Paul had been run out of both of Thessalonica and Berea, but this time when he was run out of Berea, the group that was with him and helping him do ministry stayed behind and they sent Paul on ahead by himself. Now, scripture doesn't tell us, but I would imagine that after a while of being with this lightning rod named Paul, who always was bringing riots and people wanting to kill him and therefore those with him as well. My guess is the group suggested, hey, Paul, hey, Paul, hey, Paul, why don't you just go ahead to Athens? We'll catch up with you after we kind of fix everything in Berea here that got a little chaotic, you know, and we'll tell them that you've gone and, and things will calm down a little bit and we'll, we'll fix everything here in Berea. And in other words, it's like they're saying, hey, Paul, if you can stay out of trouble in Athens, we'll catch up with you. <laughs> I mean, I don't, it doesn't say that, but man, I could certainly see uh, a lot of people saying that, right? So we find Paul in Athens. And his spirit is provoked as he's looking around the city that's filled with idols. It's, it's probably like he almost can't take it, right? Uh, because it's so vile with the idol worship everywhere. Paul is displaying, you know, it's building up this righteous anger. As he gets, he's like undone as he looks around this city. Now, just quick, quick recap. Paul is a Jew, okay? He's from the tribe of Benjamin, and, if, and, if, and if, a, if Paul abhors anything, it's idolatry. Here's, here's Paul, it says, sitting in, just picture him sitting, the, you know, going in Athens now, looking around, and he sees the temples, these statues, these sculptures, these monuments, and it's making him sick. And, and let's be crystal clear here that what is going on is not that Paul thinks he's superior to, to this cultural worshiping these idols. What Paul senses is an overwhelming mandate to proclaim the gospel for, to these people who are worshiping idols simply because they do not know and have not heard. Okay, so let's get into how Paul does it. And when he sees idols compared to what goes on so frequently today with the idols in our culture, because too often Christian look at, Christians look at our cultural idols and you know what they say? Hey, how can I become one of these? I mean, do we display righteous anger and get sick of our stomach like Paul and proclaim the gospel? What I've seen too often is the opposite. What I see is how can I get that kind of attention and worship? That's what I see. My point is I'm just speaking from observations over, over my life, over my lifetime. I, to, to me, apparently it doesn't bother us enough. And in fact, we will often embrace these various idols instead of speaking the word of God. I mean, as opposed to coming to a place where we simply cannot stand it and feel as though we have to do and say something. Okay, so let's continue reading. Continuing on now, Acts 17, verse 17. Therefore, Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. All right. Now, this is nothing new for Paul. This is something he did everywhere he went. Scripture shows us this. He went into the synagogues. 
and he'd be out in the public square. He'd do both, right? He'd go to the, with the people of his own ethnicity, the Jews, his own worldview, and he'd communicate with them. And by the way, Paul preached differently to the Jews in the synagogues than how he does in the marketplace. But Paul doesn't compromise in either setting. With the Jews in the synagogue, right, and reasoning with them, he uses scripture to show them that Jesus is the Messiah. He'd use the Old Testament pointing, that points to Jesus as the Messiah. Paul is using the very same method Jesus showed us on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 after, he is, after his resurrection. He's walking with those two witnesses that had no idea it was Jesus, right? And what did Jesus do? He, used, he said, all the scriptures from Moses to, and the prophets pointed to the, to the Messiah. That's what he did. John chapter five, Jesus reminded them that Moses was speaking about him, the Messiah. That's the technique. So Paul does the very same thing in the synagogue among the Jewish people gathered there. It's the very same thing that, that should happen in our churches. We should teach, train, and equip people to, to run to Jesus because the Old Testament points to him, right? The old is the new contained, and the new is the old explained, all right? So <clears throat> then we get Paul in the marketplace, and he uses a different method. It sounds different compared to how he talks among Jews in synagogue. Now, now let's just pause. Let's, let's pause here because it's at this point, I think, that we have a, this, this kind of division, if you will, amongst Christians, at least in the Western world. I can't speak to the third world countries because they're probably not doing it inaccurately like this. They're probably producing be way better disciples, more uh, courageous, bold, and faithful uh, Christians than what the Western world produces, okay? Okay, so what goes on in the Western world, though, is some say that we in the culture, when we're, you know, we're in the marketplace, now when Christians, I'm talking when Christians are in, you know, outside of the walls of the church, outside of your home, they say, don't be too overtly Christian. Because why? Because you don't want to turn off the culture. I mean, if you're, you know, a business person, uh, a writer, an artist, a musician, right? You don't want to go out and offend culture immediately. So, yeah, so there, you know, this is, this is the whole genesis behind this. There had to be like a different type of strategy. Because they argue you have to be on the down low with your Christianity until you get to the right place. And then you spring it on it. So, I know I'm beating this a lot, but we got to get this. I want people to process this. I want you to ask yourself about this. Because I think when you really look at it, you're afraid to do it. That's what's We're afraid. We're afraid to be a witness because we don't want to not be liked. That's the real reason. All right. Is it, let's look again, further get into this scripture here, this, this Acts 17. Is this how Paul does it? So let's read Acts 17, now verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered Paul, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, so the word babbler is an insult they used to describe Paul. We might not pick up that that's the meaning of that Greek word, but the Greek word here used is spermologus, 
And it means a loafer, a gossiper, or trifler talker, a seed picker. So when it says babbler, whatever it says in your version of the scriptures, if right there, Acts 17, 18, if it doesn't say loafer, gossiper, trifle, talkler, or a seed picker, or some kind of negative connotation instead of just babbler, it's not giving you the full understanding of what was being said about him. Because the, these people meant talking about what they're hearing from Paul are inferring that Paul is just throwing out words and that he really hasn't digested the things he is saying. He's just picking up these thoughts and sending them out all over the place like throwing seeds that you're planting. It would be accurate analogy could be to say that Paul was about to go on his day's version of the Oprah Winfrey show. And it's not because he hid his Christianity. This is what I'm talking about. Like, it's not because Paul talked, looked, smelled, and acted like the culture. It was in spite of the fact that he refused to, that he's kind of getting this attention. Paul was about to go on to the biggest stage of his day, and it was not because he compromised. It's not because he won people over or because he became like them and then springs it on them. In this particular case, it was because they thought Paul was preaching strange deities. That's usually what will happen if you're doing it right. You'll immediately stoke in people a, a, a kind of response that they want to make fun of you, call you stupid, call you ignorant, call you a lot of things, but not intelligent. <laughs> okay. Because these people at this time when Paul's speaking 2,000 years ago here in, in, uh, in Athens is they thought, these so-called wise and intelligent people thought Paul is talking about two different deities, that Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Because they thought Paul was preaching one male God and another female God, meaning Jesus and Anastasia. Remember, Paul's talking to Greeks. This is the Greek culture. And the Greek word for resurrection is Anastasia. She was a Greek god. And the bottom line is Paul is preaching the resurrection within their very culture. He's not abbreviating the gospel in order to win popularity. He is preaching Jesus Christ crucified and Jesus resurrected within the, 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 just the core of that culture. So let's be crystal clear that at this point, Paul has done nothing, according to Scripture, to impress anybody. Paul is doing nothing to embrace the crowd whatsoever to win their approval. All right, so now let's, just so we're clear. Okay, so let's continue on. Now read Acts 17, verses 19 through 21. And they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of what you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new things. So this is a culture right here. They're thinkers. They think a lot. They like to dialogue, debate, if you will. But they're thinkers. Open, I guess. So they're, they're, they're saying, okay, well, you're saying some stuff. You're kind of a babbler and you're... Not, uh, I'm not, you're not very intelligent like us, but we're willing to listen a little bit. Well, we'll, we'll hear what you say. And so by saying this, these people say this to Paul, this is Paul's big break. And note that he didn't get this big break because he looked like the world, acted like the world, smelt like the world, and tasted like the world. 
<laughs> I got to emphasize this too, that Paul is not intentionally being offensive to those around him, nor am I suggesting that we are supposed to be offensive to, to people that don't believe or want to make fun of us or question Christianity. So I just think of this in these terms to understand what is going on. Paul has his big break, right? Is on, in other words, like to our analogy today, he's on the Oprah show. And she now holds up his new book. Like she's promoting, hey, you know, he just wrote this book. It makes me think of so many people that have had opportunities like this and blow it. And they just blow their own horn. See, how sad it has been as many of us have watched numerous Christian preachers, Christian leaders, teachers be in the very same position and watch as they hold in and hide the message of the gospel intentionally. They do that, I believe, with a view toward getting to that place. They keep rationalizing, getting to that opportunity so they could achieve some kind of status and then later, having achieved that kind of status, they then try to spring on people this message that they have been hiding all along. I mean, just think about that. Think about all the pastors, all the leaders that get on these kind of shows, not just Oprah, I mean, lots of talk shows, all this stuff. And they get, they, you know what, what's their hardest one to answer? Homosexuality. Why? Because they usually have somebody in their family, a relative that is, so they don't want to offend. They're, they're not courageous enough to follow. They'd rather offend God than offend man. But it happens all the time. These music singers, these, these beautiful voices that don't have a clue about theology, that you know are, are young and learning, but they've got a friend, locally, likely, that is a confused individual and has been dampering and taper, tapering, taping, uh, tampering with, with homosexuality, uh, just sin. Um, probably, like most, 95% of these people that do this have, have were sexually abused as children, so they're confused about sex. <laughs> I tell you. Mm. And when people that are in leadership positions get on these, have these incredible platforms, and here's what I want to say. First and foremost, what they've done is they're being dishonest. Secondly, it's terrible. It's faithlessness. I mean, newsflash, folks. God is not running for the office of God, right? I mean, I know we always have people running for different offices, but God isn't one of them. God was the only one around when he, the votes were cast, and there's never going to be a recount. And just so we're clear, God doesn't need me, and he doesn't need you. And in fact, by definition, God is utterly and completely self-sufficient. I mean, if God did need anything, then by definition, he would not be God. So just stating the obvious, but gotta say it, God needs nothing. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. And if you doubt that, well, one of the days, one of these days, we're gonna die. And the world is gonna keep on spinning at the very same rate it was before you and I left it. God can get you, God can get me where he needs you to be in his own might and power. He demonstrates that here in the life of Paul. Paul goes faithfully to the synagogue and he reasons with them from the scriptures at that time, which was the, the Old Testament. Paul goes faithfully to the marketplace and he preaches Christ and the resurrection to people who philosophically are opposed to the idea of resurrection. Then they call Paul names, they mock Paul, and the result is God puts him on the biggest platform of his day. And so what does Paul do with this opportunity? 
Well, when Paul talks to a Jewish audience, he has the same worldview. But when he talks to a non-Jewish audience, they don't share the same worldview he does. When, when, when you share the same worldview with, a, worldview with a group, there is an assumption that you both agree on certain things. But when you don't share the same worldview, there's you know, these presuppositions, in other words, there has got to be something that brings you all together into the same worldview. So how do you bring the marketplace, right? How do you bring the culture that's non-believing into your worldview? Well, okay, here you go. The overarching Christian worldview narrative is what? You gotta, you gotta know this. See, this might be not really understood by everybody. What's the overarching Christian worldview? It's what? Creation, right? God created us. We fell, sin, right? Then we're redeemed, and then we're consummation. They're consummated. And somehow you have to communicate that to the people. All right, so what does Paul do when he gets his big shot at Mars Hill? Well, let's continue reading in Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. It says, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, that's Mars Hills, okay, Hill, okay, and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and considered the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Okay, so remember when we started, what? Paul was observing the culture, remember? He saw all these idols. Like you and I know it, Two of all the idols in our culture, they're all over the place, right? We need to observe the culture and please don't think that I'm suggesting that you must be an enemy of the culture or be ignorant of the culture. When you go on a trip, you best do your homework wherever you're going and learn something about that culture. I'm telling you, I've done a lot of world travel and I try to do research before. When I was in the Navy, we'd get a lot of briefs about where we were going so that we didn't stick out too bad. Like, seriously, the clothes we'd wear, if we were going to, yes, because you don't want to stick out. You're going to already, if you open your mouth, unless you know how to local language, you're going to stick out, okay? So I just, this is just a thing, just, just, to me, it's common sense, but to a lot of us, it's not, especially if you don't travel a lot. Now, having said that, there is also a difference between being an objective observer of the culture and being an indiscriminate consumer of the culture. See, an indiscriminate consumer of culture says it's, 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 it's right to do something because it's popular in the culture. And since the goal is to be popular in the culture, therefore, we must adopt and adapt whatever it is that the culture is celebrating and partake in it. No. No. Paul is not making an argument, but rather he is observing that culture with a view toward the proclamation of the gospel. You can be in the midst of that stuff just not partaking. That's the hard part. Saying no to things that you know are against the word of God. That's the hard part. Many of us fail at that almost every day because we want to fit in. Instead, we should be looking at that as what an opportunity I have. See, do you see how you gotta, you gotta train yourself up and you gotta get in this battle? And I encourage you to start in smaller places because if you go to a bigger place with a lot of people, you're probably gonna be more embarrassed and probably never do it again because you'll be so hurt and so embarrassed. You've got to train yourself up so when you get opportunities like Paul had, he had been doing this and doing this and doing this for years. This is what I'm talking about. This is what being a disciple is. 
Look what Paul says next in Acts 17, verse 23. Therefore, the one who you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Uh, okay, in other words, Paul is saying, I have been observing your culture and I've noticed some statues. And I really like that one over there that was to this unknown God. And oh, by the way, that God you say is unknown, let me introduce you to him. Look at what verse 24 now says. That, that unknown God, God is God who made the world and everything in it. In other words, creation. And by the way, Paul is already going directly against the philosophies of the individuals he talked to in the marketplace. So there's some, there's some like conflict here already. Paul is saying that unknown God you have a statue of, I know him, his name, he is God, and he created everything. He created the world. Now, this is not the philosophy that those Greeks believed. They didn't believe this, right? This is what the Hebrew and Christian God and people believe. They believe that, right? So guess what? In our culture, people say that you are an ignorant, narrow-minded hick if you believe that God created the world. Well, things haven't changed, have they? It's this very same thing they were saying to Paul. I've been around, you know, I'm college educated, graduated college with an economics degree in 1985, Bachelor of Arts. Right? Got a, got a ministry degree. I've received a doctorate, an honorary doctorate in my Christian theology. Um, I've been around my share of college-educated people. And the favorite topic for me to talk about with them is the Bible and specifically the first book, Genesis. Because <laughs> it, it really, oh man, they try to set a trap by going, are you one of those, you know, real college-educated intellectuals or are you one of those narrow-minded Bible thumpers? Which is, that's what they kind of say to me. Are you one of those guys that thinks God created the world in a week? You know what my response to them is? No. God did it in six days. He rested on the seventh. <laughs> this is, I, mean, I mean, here's the thing. Here's something. We got to understand what we're up against here in the Western world, in present day culture. It's not much different than then where he was in Greece. You know what we're up against? And I'm talking about the Western culture, which is America, Europe, um, Australia, South Africa, Canada, you know. Uh, the Western culture is Greek society redeemed and sustained by a Judeo-Christian value system. That's what the world we live in. Because we still got, we, we have this, we worship the thinkers, that came from Greek, just like here. In Acts 17, what Paul's up against, that's what we're up against, that very same spirit. It's the spirit of you know, intellectual authority, intellectual superiority. It's all over the Western world. If they say it, we're supposed to just bow down and do it because they're so smart and elite compared to us stupid people. How'd that work out for us the last three years? Four years ago now. It's four years ago now. Oh my gosh, four years ago now was COVID was hitting. Oh my gosh. Yeah, four years ago. Stupid little Adam. Man, I didn't follow. Man, I'm so stupid. I didn't close the church that I was running. No, I was the only church in our area that was open. Oh, I was getting ridiculed, made fun of. He's terrible. He's hurting people. He's injuring people. Nobody got hurt. 
No. In fact, so many people were so excited that we stayed open, they couldn't believe that other churches, because these people that were running the churches were, were not brave enough at the time. Hopefully they are now, and hopefully they repented to their people and admitted they made a mistake, because, oh boy, did we learn we were duped by these so-called intellectual scientist people. Let's look at, you know, let's look at how Paul did this as we continue on. In Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord in heaven and earth, does not dwell in temple made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life, he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Well, 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 wouldn't you know, Paul just exploded their philosophy. God didn't just create the world, he also sustains the world. He doesn't live in temples made with hands and he's not served by human hands. Oh my gosh, let's rewind some here and explain what's going on. I mean, Paul says, listen, I observed your culture. I observed your statues, your temples. And what I want to say to you is this, it's all rubbish. It's all wrong. God doesn't live in those places you built. God is not impressed with those statues you built or those monuments you built. Now, folks, does this sound like somebody who showed up on Oprah trying to make her happy or concerned about making the audience happy? Paul does not compromise to get here. And he doesn't compromise while he's there. And why? Because after God made the world, next came sin. Paul tells them God created the world and then you aren't worshiping him like you should, so the fall of man is next. That's what's here. Acts 17, continuing on with verses 26 through 29. And God has made from one blood every nation of man to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. In other words, Paul just told them they are sinful and not right with God, and your feeble attempt to make an unknown God statue isn't going to work. That's not going to get you to where you need to go. And then continuing, right? Though we are sinful, Paul says there is hope. There's redemption. Look at verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Aha! Paul reveals on the proper way to get right with this God. Repent from your sin. Repent from your stinking thinking, from your wrong feeling, all of that stuff. Repent. In other words, Paul is not compromising to get here, but once he's here, Paul says, your worldview is wrong. Your philosophy is wrong. And it's not just wrong. It's actually an affront to God. It's sin. And he says, you ought to know better. You're living in sin. But the good news is God has extended to you an opportunity to acknowledge that, to ask for forgiveness, to repent, to turn away from that way of living, right? to turn away from those things you've attempted to do in order to appease this God that you don't even know. And so the technique Paul used, this is what I'm trying to get, the technique Paul used was to share about creation, the fall of man, the redemption of man, and finally, we'll call him what? The consummation. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 31. 
because God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising this man from the dead. Jesus. <coughs> Hallelujah. So we not only have consummation, but he throws that resurrection thing in there once again, this guy he raised from the dead. And by the way, remember, it was the resurrection thing that made them call Paul names in the first place. Before Paul even gets to Mars Hill, they are calling him names because he's preaching the resurrection of the dead. So Paul is, he's not naive. He's well aware that they don't like this idea of resurrection. So Paul gets the opportunity to stand before some influential people in this culture. And what does he do? He preaches a message that not only calls their worldview and worship into question, but directly calls them sinners to the God who created them, created their world. And he encourages them to repent and turn from their sin. And just for good measure, before he's finished, Paul throws back in there the one thing that made them insult him, right? So, wow, I'm hoping we're seeing Paul is really working hard to win friends and influence people, isn't he? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. I mean, I mean, you know, probably people wouldn't even look at this as a sermon. And he's just dialoguing, right? But what a sermon it is. He's talking about creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's Paul's message to the marketplace. And what is the impact after he does that? Verses, Acts 17, verses 32 and 34 say, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay, so, so here's the question. What will happen if you as a Christian compromise with culture to fit in and then are given an opportunity to preach the gospel? You know what's going to happen? Some are going to mock you, some will hear you further, and some will believe. Okay, so then what will happen when you don't compromise with culture and you're given an opportunity to preach the gospel? The exact same thing, folks. Some will mock you, some will hear you further, and some will believe. I guess what I'm trying to get at is why bother compromising in the first place? Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation for all to believe. And that right there is the ultimate question that is at the heart of this issue. And sadly, there are those who think that the power of God unto salvation is popularity in the culture. Some believe that what God really needs is for us to be powerful and popular so that God can use my name to get the word out. I've watched so many people get excited and enraptured when we find out that some popular or powerful person is a Christian. People say, ooh, that's so great because God will use his name and his platform to spread the gospel. Well, God already has his name that's above every name. The name at which every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, right? If God already has the name that is above every name, what makes you think he needs yours or somebody else's? That type of thinking that God needs your name, I imagine, belittles God. Scripture says God uses the weak things of the world, the despised things of the world, to shame those things that are boasting. Hmm. So, as I wrap this up, what are you going to do with this today? 
You know, let, let me end and be crystal clear about something. The goal of our lives must not be some type of scheme to gain popularity so we can use it for God. The goal of our lives must be to know God better and serve him faithfully in whatever arena he opens up for you. I hope, <laughs> I hope we can stop the belief that somehow we have to manipulate and satisfy the world in order to get in a position where God can use us. And that does not mean, folks, you can't be popular in whatever field you're in. Just don't pursue a path that compromises your knowledge of God in order to get there. Let's admit enough is enough to this belief that somehow you have to manipulate and satisfy the world in order to get in a position where God can use you. Fact of the matter is God is bigger than that. If you think you need the right credential, then God is not big enough. Paul was one of the most educated men of his time. He stood up, made much of God, and he did so without compromising. My prayer is that we would do that same thing going forward. God bless you all.